Time for swordplay. Alex, the American Worldview Inventory 2020 survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that over half of U.S. Christians believe good works will get them into heaven. Well, Nick, that just goes to show you, it's hard to believe. (laughs) I guess we'll have to keep working on that. That's right. (laughs) This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, the second half of the book of Esther, that's Esther chapters 6 through 10. That's right, and this is part two out of our three-part series on Esther. Part three, next time, will be on the Greek Esther. So, Nick, why don't you give us a review of uh, where we left off last time? Yeah, when last we left our heroes. Um, I almost feel like this is... Esther reads kind of like a soap opera, and so I almost feel like I need some background, like... uh, uh, Days of Our Lives. Yeah, that that kind of... Theme song. (laughs) Organy type music, right? Um, All right, so what happened? Well, King Xerxes has dethroned Queen Vashti in a flash temper tantrum. Hadassah, a.k.a. Esther, a Jewish virgin living in Persia, wins an X-rated beauty pageant in order to become the new queen. At the behest of her cousin Mordecai, Esther has risked her life to come before King Xerxes in an attempt to thwart the murderously genocidal plans Haman the Agagite has for the Jews. She hosts a banquet for the king and Haman, and invites them back for a second banquet the next day. Meanwhile, Haman has conceived a plot to murder Mordecai on gallows 75 feet tall. And we we join our heroes in As the Persian World Turns. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was a good recap. And we... We're doing chapter summaries, and then we'll ask a few questions each chapter. So, uh, Nick, I think you're going to kick us off here with chapter 6 summary. What is that about? So, that night, the very same night that Haman builds those gallows, and when he's conceived his plot, he's going to hang or impale, if you read uh, the gallows as a stake there, uh, Mordecai, Xerxes, he can't sleep. Convenient. So, he orders his servants to bring some light reading material, certain to cure his insomnia. The book of Chronicles, not the biblical book, the Persian record of honorable and memorable deeds. So, they're reading along, and ah, there's the account of what Mordecai did when he thwarted an assassination plot by two of the king's eunuchs, and that's back in chapter 2. Did we ever do? Did we ever honor Mordecai for that? The king asks his young men. No, nothing. Well, uh, look out. Who's in the court? Now, either the chronicle was read to him until the wee hours of the morn, or else Haman too can't sleep, too excited to sleep, thinking about how great it will be to see Mordecai finally dead. Anyway, Haman <laughs> is in the court, and the king invites him up and asks him, What should be done to the person the king wants to honor? Here's my chance, Haman thinks. Surely the king will want to honor him. So he lets his imagination run wild. 
robes the king has worn, a horse the king has rode, a crown on the horse, a parade through the city square with the finest noble shouting, This is what is done for the one whom the king delights. Brilliant, Haman. Now, go do that for Mordecai the Jew. Chagrined (laughs) deeply, Haman does everything he had dreamed up for himself for his mortal enemy, Mordecai. And then, head covered in grief and embarrassment, he goes home and he tells his wife and friends what happened. They reply that if Mordecai is a Jew, then... Haman, your goose is cooked. There's nothing you can do to beat him. And as they are conversing, one of the king's eunuchs arrives to whisk Haman off to the second banquet. More next And time. that's chapter 6. That's right. Um, all right, so we started off verse 1 there, Alex. You re- we read about how the, the king could not sleep. And so, should the king's insomnia be seen as an act of divine guidance, which leads to the reading of the Chronicles? You know, I think that is the assumption that the reader is supposed to take. You know, that's the way Josephus read the story, if you go through and read his summary of Esther. Uh, In fact, Josephus also adds that the royal story time did last into the wee hours of the morn, as you suggested. And Haman did happen to show up extra early for work that day, eager to ask for Mordecai's death. So your uh, summary of the chapter was read very much in the same way it would have been read in the first century. Yeah, Josephus, also Greek Esther, which again, we'll take a deep dive on that next time, but it says, uh, chapter 6 opens with, the Lord took sleep from the king. Um, however, uh, we're working with the Hebrew form, and it uh, it rests more on innuendo, the invisible hand of providence. Um, nevertheless, even without explicit mention, the reader is intended to draw the conclusion God was behind the scenes, causing Xerxes' insomnia. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a bit about that. Right. So, did Haman's wife then, and friends, did they really not know that Mordecai was a Jew before their declaration of Haman's inability to succeed against him? Uh, this seems a little contradictory, Nick. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, when you compare 613, where they tell him, uh, you're, you will not overcome him because he's of the Jewish people, um, and then you connect this back with 513 where he, after recounting just how great he is and his wife has given him all these children and everything, um, uh, he told them that uh, part of his, his rehearsal is Mordecai the Jew is sitting at the king's gate. So it, it's strange. It's strange that no one mentioned this very important fact earlier. Any, <laughs> any plot against the Jewish people will fail. Uh, again, Haman, he didn't leave out the Jewishness of Mordecai when he shared with uh, his family and friends the previous day. He specifically calls him Mordecai the Jew. So did the crowd kind of zone out during his speech of how great he is and and how great his family is? I mean, uh, here he goes again, the I'm so great I have lots of kids speech again, snooze, right? Or was it more like, (laughs) oh, wait. You said Mordecai the Jew? We thought you said Mordecai who's new. <laughs> oh, well, that, that changes everything, right? 
Um, of course, we can't overlook that it is Haman's wise men or advisors who reveal this oracle along with his wife. So perhaps, maybe to give their revelation more of like a mystical feel, they include this previously known fact just to give their saying that extra oracle sound to it. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people... You will not overcome him. You will surely fall before him. What's especially noteworthy about this is that even pagans recognize that God protects his chosen people, even when he's behind the scenes. And he's not explicitly named in it. Uh, Luck or chance, those are not the final verdict of events. God is. And this is a well-attested theme which runs throughout Scripture. But if there's one verse that I think kind of crowns this theme— It's probably in the crescendo of Paul's argument in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so here you have in Esther, here's here's one of the roots of that teaching that Paul gives there is, yeah, if if God is for Mordecai, Haman, you're not going to succeed. So uh, that's, that's what I found. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, if I was Haman... I would immediately fire these wise men. Immediately. Yeah. If Mordecai's a Jew, then nothing will overcome him? Seriously? That would have been great to know yesterday right. before you told me to build the gallows. You know I hate Mordecai the Jew. I even convinced the king to issue an edict year ahead of time to wipe out all of the Jews. Don't you remember the decree? Do you listen to anything I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> Maddening. Maddening. So if I were endeavoring to keep the story consistent, then I kind of find your oracle explanation the most compelling, so I'll build on top of that. Mm. Uh, If you went that direction, you could say, in other words, the wise men, his wife Zeresh, they were speaking their own opinion when instructing Haman about the gallows. But now they've been overcome by a spirit, a prophetic spirit, and they begin to utter prophetic oracles that are in favor of his enemy. So in that scenario, Haman is made to look like Balak, king of Moab, Mm. when Balaam couldn't help but to keep prophesying blessings upon the Israelites, though he looked for another way to curse them. And what I like about this theory is that it fits the pattern of linking characters from Esther's story back to the characters from Israel's early history. As we've seen with Haman the Agagite, in the history of the Agagite, uh, king of uh, the Amalekites. And we'll see again with uh, later, with Mordecai's future and his rise to power. Now that will parallel, uh, parallel, in many ways, Joseph's rise to power in Egypt in the book of Genesis. So I think there's a lot of different... um, a lot of different intentional parallels made there in Israel's history, these archetypes. So we'll, we'll point out a few more of those as we go along. Yeah, good good connections there. All right, let's, uh, let's advance the narrative here, Alex. Uh, give us a, a summary here of Chapter 7. Okay, Chapter 7 summary. So Haman may have still been sulking after such humiliation of having to honor your sworn enemy across the city. But at least he could begin to recover by joining the king and queen as the exclusive guest of Esther's banquet. I'm sure he was curious about the long-delayed request from the, from the queen. And at the behest of the king, Esther finally makes her request. O king, I only request my life. 
since someone has plotted to destroy me and my people. What? A plot to destroy an entire people group, you say? Hmm, doesn't sound familiar to me. Hmm, who would do this? Haman does this? What? Now, the king had been drinking. And as we've seen on multiple occasions, the king is pretty easily manipulated when he's drinking. He's also pretty forgetful when he's been drinking because he definitely agreed to Haman's idea of wiping out the Jews while having drinks with Haman in chapter 3. So after yet another temper tantrum, the king puts himself and time out in the royal garden. And upon returning, he finds Haman draped over his wife, Queen Esther. Of course, Haman was actually just trying to plead for his life, but uh, the queen didn't bother to explain that to the king whose intention was to harm and habit of making extreme decisions while drunk became all too apparent to the doomed Haman, whose gallows built for the execution of Mordecai would now be used to execute him. Hmm. And that's chapter 7. So, chapter 7 questions. Nick, tell me what you think. Was Esther's hidden Jewish identity the key to the Jews' salvation. Yeah, the story does kind of hinge on this plot point, right? Back in 2 verse 10, Mordecai had commanded Esther not to reveal her Jewish identity. And why? We could speculate uh, about uh, anti-Semitic sentiments among the people or inability to get consideration as the next queen because she's not Persian. Uh, Whatever the reason, that hiding of her Jewish identity does lead to the death decree kind of getting past Xerxes. Uh, Perhaps if Xerxes had known that his wife was a Jew, he would not have given Haman his ring for the death decree to be signed with, but he didn't, and it nearly ended in disaster for Esther's people. So, So in that sense, Esther's hidden Jewish identity was at least indirectly the key to the near annihilation of the Jewish nation. Then, when Xerxes realizes his queen's life is threatened because she is Jewish, it sets in motion legislative events which results in salvation for the Jewish people. So so I think, yeah, a lot of this story hinges on Esther hiding her Jewish identity. What do you think, Alex? Well, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I wonder how this element of the story would have resonated or repelled the Jewish audience during the Second Temple era. You know, a conservative Jew would never have thought it proper to hide one's Jewishness, let alone to be the queen of a Gentile king. But in the story, it's those very elements that bring about salvation for the Jews. And yet Mordecai, he's sort of the conservative Jew in the story. He is openly Jewish. He still works on behalf of the Gentile rulers, uh, but he will also be the one, spoiler alert, honored at the story's end. So does this story then offer perhaps some sort of piecemeal for Jews on both sides of the political aisle in the Second Temple period, especially later in uh, Hellenization times? I think perhaps, because you have uh, God working through both, the, the one who hid her Jewishness and the one who openly expressed his Jewishness, both trying to be faithful and follow the law and trust in God. And we'll get more of that undertone when we see Greek Esther next time. But 
maybe this is one of those stories where like, hey, God can use you either way, whether you want to openly be Jewish or not. Maybe that was the point of the story. Mm. Well, Nick, does the king, and I kind of incorporated this into my retelling of the chapter, but mm. does the king really not remember agreeing to Haman's plot? So this kind of is akin to what we talked about at the end of chapter 6, where the uh, Zeresh and the, the advisors are, are – do they have kind of selective memory or something? Is, is that the case with Haman as well? And going back and, and rereading Haman's petition in chapter 3, just reading through that, it does sound rather vague. He, he doesn't specify who the people are. The king's only involvement appears to be – in kind of a, a token official capacity to sign off on the deal, he doesn't. He isn't even involved in the drafting of the decree. He isn't present for the signing. Even he just gives his ring to Haman and essentially says, "Ah, do your thing, Haman." And, and then there is Esther's speech, which is careful to separate Xerxes from Haman's plot. It's it's always Haman's plot. It's not King. You did this. And uh, while she uses the language of the decree, destroy, kill, annihilate, again, Xerxes may not have been familiar with the decree's language himself. Uh, Haman certainly didn't use that language when discussing the plot, his plot with the king, say for destroy. So it may be that something of what he had discussed with Haman was, was coming to his remembrance and Esther has been careful to place the blame elsewhere. And it may also be that you know, Xerxes is just kind of double-checking his facts. Remember that when the assassination plot was brought to him back in Chapter 2, he, in, he had that investigated. So perhaps he's connecting the dots and is now just kind of making sure he's drawn the proper conclusion. Or, as you point out, maybe he's just too drunk to remember the decree. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a possibility, too. Other than that last point, you were an excellent defense attorney for <laughs> King Artaxerxes here. <laughs> Listen, okay, we're, we're nearing towards the end of the story, and the consistent picture of the Persian king in this story is one of irrational behavior. Yep. It's all over the place. That's all he does. And, and Esther's no dummy. She's smart. She's displayed high levels of, of uh, intelligence. So, of course, she's going to distance the king from Haman's plot. Uh, you know, she knows why she's there in the first place. Remember, remember Vashti? But in the ancient world, and even today, the one in authority is ultimately responsible for the actions of those under their authority. And at the very least, the king indiscriminately handed his ring and authority over to Haman to destroy an entire people group. And the fact that the king may not have known which people group it was, that almost makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, sure, go ahead, whichever one you, you have in mind. Sure, Haman, take out these people, whoever they are. Now, let's get back to our drinking games. The mob outside the palace seems to be getting loud. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think uh, there seems to be an intentional characterization in the story of uh, what kind of person the Persian king is. And it's not good. It's not good. So let's do a chapter eight summary. Nick, why don't you summarize that for us? Ding dong, Haman's dead. Which Haman? The Agagite, right? 
Um, <laughs> it's yeah, he's he's gone, and and so what happens? Xerxes gives Esther Haman's house, which she in turn deeds to Mordecai. Mordecai also receives Xerxes' signet ring, something which would have been used for lawmaking, as we see with uh, Haman back in chapter three. Now. Despite Haman being dead, the edict he got passed, his bad legislation, still in place. Come March 13th, 12th month of the Hebrew calendar, uh, Adar, and then on the 13th day, the Jewish people, they will be exterminated. If only there was something that could be done, Esther throws herself before Xerxes and pleads for mercy against Haman's evil plot. And Esther is careful to lay the burden of the bad law again on Haman and not Xerxes, but she begs Xerxes to revoke it. Xerxes says he can't revoke the law, but Esther can write a new law and seal it with Xerxes' signet ring. So that's what they do. The king's scribes produce the documents in multiple languages. They send them out via the Persian post office. And the new law says the Jewish people can defend themselves on March 13th, and they can also go on the offensive against any people who try to attack them. Meanwhile, Mordecai gets decked out in his in very fine apparel, royal robes and a crown, and it is party time for the Jewish people. Fear of the Jews falls on the other people groups to such a degree that there are even mass conversions to uh, Judaism. So, uh, and scene. That's the end of chapter eight. <laughs> well, Nick, chapter eight. First question: Why do you think it was important to know that Haman was the son of Hamadatha? Because it mentions that a few times in the story. Right. Perhaps it's the author's way to zhuzh the story, word of the day, right? Just, uh, you know, something, here's here's a style point, right? A little, little interesting tidbit, uh, maybe make it a little more appealing, something like that. But um, perhaps that's what's going on. What do you think? There may be something intentionally done with their names. Uh, the name Haman can uh, mean a rioter. And the name Hamadatha can mean he that troubles the law. And so you have Haman, the son of Hamadatha. In other words, a rioter, son of he that troubles the law. And what has Haman done in this story? He has manipulated the law to his favor for the destruction of the Jews. And it almost seems like his destiny to do this with his name and his father. And so though Haman is now dead, the preeminent problem of Esther is figuring out how to reverse the law that was sent out by Haman. And so that could be some intentional storytelling. Yeah, interesting what you found on Hamadatha's uh, name, what his name means. Uh, I found his name means given by the moon or uh, following the Persian, strongly made. But that uh, interesting, given by the moon, old moon calf Hamadatha, another word of the day, right? Yeah, that's right. And there are uh, several of these uh, books out there that scholars have put out where it's just got a list of all the names in the Bible, and then you can uh, see w- what the definition is. And depending on what language they're uh, speculating on, it might be in uh, Aramaic, it means this, in Persian, it means this, and it could be different things. So hard to say for sure every time, but it would be some uh, poetic uh, 
poetic techniques going on there. Right. So, Nick, which people then, in their right mind, would still attack the Jews after this new edict had been decreed? I mean, they now have the right to assemble, to defend themselves, to go on the offensive, as you said. But if that's the case, I mean, who would still line up for battle? Shouldn't this eliminate the potential for any conflict? One would think. <laughs> uh, however, Haman was a powerful man of substantial influence, no doubt had diehard devotees committed to the Haman doctrine. And so any followers of Haman probably would not be dissuaded from carrying out the posthumous wishes of their deceased leader. Then there's the fact that Haman was an Agagite, and as discussed previously, Agag was king of the Amalekites. So any remnant of the Amalekites would probably seek to carry out the death decree. And then there was Haman's family, those ten sons he loved to dote over. Their number is finally revealed in chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. They're actually named there in 7 through 10. And then also verse 12, uh, they are mentioned, the ten sons of Haman. And so perhaps they wanted retribution for dear old dad, right? Um, one thing I also want to just kind of stress here is that this this is a defense decree for the Jews. They didn't start the fight, but they will definitely finish it. Gather and defend their lives that might, uh, against those who might attack them, says 8 verse 11. So whether those listed uh, that I've listed here or any other group of folks who are out to harm the Jews, the Jewish people have the right to self-defense. So uh, that's my take on it. What do you think, Alex? Well, I'm not sure this would be completely self-defense, given the clause that also allows the Jews to extend the retaliation to the women and children of their enemies. That's a little more than self-defense. That little detail adds to the inference that these are indeed probably the cursed Amalekites that we're supposed to uh, read into the story. They will be slaughtered wholesale, man, woman, and child. And the reason that that detail lends itself to pointing towards the Amalekites is because the same event and decree was issued by Yahweh to King Saul in 1 Samuel fifteen eighteen, And so the annihilation of specific people groups in the early days of Israel, that had a lot to do with where they believed these people groups to have originated from, as in... Uh, their their spiritual origin and why so many that goes along with why so many giants lived among these peoples but that's another podcast for another another day <laughs> so there's um another element to this to this question right was this just self-defense well there's a special request and we haven't gotten there yet but it's in chapter nine and esther she's going to ask for an extra day of killing their enemies so that can't be self-defense because the appointed day of legal conflict had already passed. And so the first decree was, you can rise up and kill the Jews on this one day. Just one day, wipe them out. Then the second decree comes and it says, hey, on that same day, the Jews can rise up and defend themselves and wipe their enemies out. So in essence, there was no need for the conflict to go beyond that one day, uh, especially since by this time, the entire Persian Empire was clearly now on the side of the Jews. So for the Amalekites, though, that wouldn't matter because if we're reading this 
in light of Israel's early history, the Amalekites and the Israelites, they have an eternal battle going back a thousand years. They saw it that way. The Jews saw it that way. And that's why an extra day of battle and slaughter is requested by Esther. So, um, you have this, you mentioned at the end of chapter 8, this mass conversion, right? All these people becoming Jews. But how would people become Jews? I mean, the language used, it seems a lot stronger than just the idea of being a proselyte. And uh, any ideas there, Nick? Yeah, so uh, Israel is fulfilling her mission as a light to the nations, uh, Isaiah 42, 6. Uh, Such mass conversions, they are not unique to Esther. Back during the Exodus, there were some Egyptians who apparently wanted to uh, go with and did go with the Israelites as they left, and that resulted in a mixed multitude, Exodus 12 and verse 38 tells us. I also also think about uh, Ruth, who abandons whatever Moabite deities she may have followed in order to follow Yahweh, Naomi's God. And since circumcision was uh, the sign of the covenant, it makes sense. Circumcision would no doubt have been enjoined on the men who were converted. Uh, It was, of course, circumcision, which was at the heart of debate in the early church. So uh, uh, when so many Gentiles were were converted, the Jewish Christians apparently wanted to make it a part of the conversion process, no doubt indicating that this was an element brought over from the Judaism that they practiced then. And that's the way Josephus read the story of Esther, right? He he adds the detail that these Gentiles, they circumcise themselves. Great connection, yeah. Um, in addition to this, when Ezra leads a group of exiles back to the land, when they celebrate the Passover, both the people of Israel and everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship Yahweh also ate the Passover. Um I don't have the reference there. It's Ezra uh, chapter 6. I can't think of the verse now. but uh, So, abandonment of moral impurity and idolatry are part of the conversion process, it seems. So, circumcision and abstinence from uh, moral impurity seem to go along with this idea of the, the, the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Uh, I think uh, those two things at least would have been in, joined upon the people. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I like your connection to the Exodus about the mixed multitude coming out. Um, that finds a very strong parallel here in Esther, because in Esther it says the dread of them, that is the Jews, had fallen on all the peoples. That's Esther 9-2. Just like During the Exodus, the dread of all the Israelites had fallen upon all the Egyptians because of the ten plagues. In fact, even the memory of those ten plagues persisted among the nations for uh, even 40 years later when Rahab says, yeah, we've heard what your God did to Egypt, and the, the dread of you is upon all the people of Canaan. So, follow-up question Does this mean that we are to assume from Esther that there were Persians and Medes en masse that became officially part of the tribe of Judah? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how the tribal (laughs) stuff worked. Um, Because it looks that way in the Exodus, right? You have um, 
Caleb, his father was a Kenizzite, I believe. Right. And so, but he is he is listed as an official Israelite, and so it seems like when they come out of Egypt, we know it's a mixed multitude, but you don't have any more mention about those who had been mixed in. It's just you have the twelve tribes, and those that's all the people. There's not the twelve tribes plus the plus the, the Egyptians who who yeah, came the, with us. The, the tribe of the the outsiders or something. Yeah, exactly. There, it seems like they have officially assimilated into the tribes, and so they're they're no longer Egyptian now. They are of the tribe of whatever whatever tribe they assimilated into. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe that happened with the P- Persians and the Medes. If we're reading this as a historical event. This brings the narrative to chapter 9. Alex, take it from here. All right, so March 13th rolls around, and the decree to harm the Jews has been effectively reversed. So the Jews can now harm their enemies, and all of the governing rulers, they side with the Jews throughout all the land. And that's a good call, since everyone now knows that the king's wife is a Jew, and the new number two guy in the land, Mordecai, is also a Jew. So the Jews, they strike down 500 people at the capital, including the 10 sons of Haman, who were likely hoping to avenge their father, but of course to no avail. Some commentators have noted that since Haman was an Amalekite, and a minute ago we talked about this, that the people that still rose up then to kill the Jews, they were likewise Amalekites, thus settling once and for all the Israeli-Amalekite feud forever again. (laughs) (laughs) This already happened in 1 Chronicles 4, verse 43. So, I mean, they were already recorded as being wiped out. Man, those those Amalekites just keep turning up. Now they're wiped out again. There you go. Double dead. So the story, it repeats several times through uh, through the battle here. That the Jews, though they killed their enemies, they did not take the plunder from their enemies after killing them. Although it seems like they could have. They were they would have had permission. But they chose not to. So they didn't take the plunder from the enemies that they killed. Queen Esther makes two more small requests from the king after day one. Allow one more day of fighting for the Jews to kill their enemies in the capital. Oh, also, second request hang Haman's dead sons on the gallows. So the king, he agrees, and they kill another 300 men in Susa the next day, in addition to the 75,000 that had been killed throughout the empire, and then they put the dead sons of Haman on stakes or gallows uh, that Mordecai had built. So Mordecai then um, sends out a letter to all Jews near and far, to celebrate the 14th and 15th of the 12th month, which is roughly March, in remembrance of their victory. Celebration should be conducted through feasting, through sharing food with one another, giving to the poor. And this feast shall be called Purim, which means to cast lots, because the lot to destroy the Jews was reversed in their favor to bring their salvation. So the legitimacy of Purim, that really seems to be the thrust at the end of this story here. Uh, spends a lot of time focusing on that. Uh, it's labeled as being just as important as the appointed times of fasting and lamentations. Uh, those appointed times were established during exile and still practiced after exile. And as a side note, 
because this, this is pretty much the end of the story. As a side note, over the centuries, uh, rabbinic tradition on how to celebrate Purim departs from the instructions here. It, I would say it devolves from a time of sharing food and helping the poor to a time in which one is obligated to, quoting from the rabbis, get so drunk that they cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. That's Talmudic tractate Megillah 7b. Hmm. So that's a sad commentary because it sounds like they're going to honor the Persian king and his habits more than the story itself or the Jewish heroine or hero within. So that's Esther. That's the Masoretic text of Esther. Chapter 9 questions Nick. Why do you think the Jews didn't take any plunder after killing their enemies? It mentions it three times, right? In yeah. Chapter 9, verse 10, verse 15, verse 16. Yeah, and that threefold repetition emphasizes this point. It shows that the Jewish people, they were doing what they did only to save their lives. And in addition, it draws a contrast with the failure of Saul when a King Saul, back in 1 Samuel 15, when the people took the spoils of war in a misguided effort to sacrifice to God the best of the things that were supposed to be devoted to destruction. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 9 and verse 21. Again, the, the, the connections to that story are, are very strong, as we've been saying all along. So uh, right. what, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, the, the parallels of Mordecai to Saul, uh, they do seem intentional. They are both sons of Kish. They both have conflicts with the Amalekites. Uh, but unlike Saul, who spared King Agag, uh, Haman, the Agagite, is hung from the gallows and his family wiped out. Um, also, unlike Saul, who did take the spoils of the Amalekites when Yahweh said not to, the Jews this time around, they don't take anything. It's almost like they're trying to make up for uh, the, the history that would be seen as a blemish in their history, right? And as I mentioned earlier, there seems to be an intentional linking of characters in this story to other people famous in Israel's early history. So that seems intentional to me. Mm. Uh, Nick, why was the author so concerned about the Feast of Purim fading from their memory? This is at the end of chapter 9 where you have a large section just dedicated to the, the legitimacy, the authority of celebrating this festival. And the, the chief concern is do it or else we'll forget about it. Why do you think that was that was the concern? I would say that it's probably because of its origin, right? Its origin is human rather than divine. Uh, that is to say, it, it's a feast that is not prescribed in Torah. The Jewish people made it up after a harrowing experience. And so I think that would probably be the, uh, the primary factor of them repeating uh, multiple times, saying, "Look, don't don't forget it. Don't let it fade from memory." And uh, why they were so emphatic on the authority that they have in order to establish this feast. That's what I think. What do you think? Yeah, I'm interested in the part also where it was added and compared to the days of lamenting and the days of fasted uh, fasting. Those days, um, 
which are not in the law of Moses. Uh, law of Moses only requires one day of fasting, and that's on the day of atonement. Otherwise, it's situational, right? You, you fast when you need to, when there's something important or uh, terrible happening, basically. We see in the New Testament that fast days are still kept up twice a week by top Pharisees. And so it seems that the, the pro-Purim folks endorsing this story seems like they wanted to lump this holiday in with the subset of sacred-held, yet not inspired, traditions. So the question is, how many of the Jewish people went along with this holiday and endorsed this story? And as we discussed in the first episode, not everyone, not everyone. So chapter 10 summary, Nick, we have a few verses here. Tell us about that. Yeah, just uh, like a coda to the book, uh, which notes that Xerxes imposed a tax. And we're to recall that back in chapter 2, he had remitted taxes. Now he you got to pay for those fees somehow, right? Um and while Xerxes does that, Mordecai rises to power to second in the kingdom behind the king. He was especially popular among the Jewish people because he advocated policies which were beneficial for the Jewish people. And that's the end of the book. <laughs> and in that chapter, it mentions the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. Isn't right. it written in there? It's like, hey, don't you know about that? Don't you have a copy? So, Nick. Do we? Do we have the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? This is probably the—so the short answer is no, I think. But it's probably the same book that's mentioned earlier in Esther, chapter 2, verse 23, the one that was read when the king had insomnia, 6, verse 1. Herodotus, uh, the historian, in his histories—what is that, book 8, chapter 90, verse 4, something like that— uh, he does record that Xerxes was in the habit of having his scribes write down the name of his men who served with distinction in battle. So there, there is precedent for some kind of book. Uh, Brenneman, in the New American Commentary on the Book of uh, Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia, he actually argues it a little differently. He says that uh, this may have been a, like a popular record rather than like an official uh, royal record, an official document. And this popular record may have been, and perhaps probably was, written by a Jew. Uh, bottom line is, whether it was something official that Xerxes had his scribes write down or something that was more popular written down by a Jewish person, um, yeah, it, we don't have this. <laughs> we don't have this book. Uh, at least that's what I found. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, it would be... It would be nice if we had something like that, but we don't. If Esther, and we, we threw this out there, you know, before, if Esther was an inspired piece of fiction, then it would have been understood by the audience that there is no such book. And so the mentioning of the Chronicles, it sort of gives it that ring of Torah. It gives it that ring of, of thus saith, you know, the prophet uh, when ancient authors in in their books, when they say the same tagline, Behold, uh, isn't it written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? It's like, well, yes, it is. And we have, we have the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Um, and that's a common tagline in prophetic writings. So to kind of add it, except in the case of, you know, Behold, it's written in the, the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. I think it sort of 
it attempts to add that flavor of authenticity. Here's a pro research tip for you, though, if you want to find the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. If you come across a book claiming to be the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia on Amazon, written by someone alive today, then it is most definitely not the real chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia, <laughs> which so far has yet to be discovered, but it is hilarious to read all of the disappointed reviewers of that book on Amazon. So mm. if you want a good laugh, go read that. People were people were bamboozled. They're like, I am shocked. I'm a Bible student, and I bought this expecting to learn history, and this is all made up. <laughs> so, yeah, so you might want to double-check that. Caveat emperor. Pro-research tip. Pro-research tip. Liar beware. All right, last question. Uh for chapter 10 before we wrap things up nick why do you think it was important to note at the end of the book last verse you know it's the last word you're going to leave your audience with and it notes that mordecai rose to be second in command why why is that important well probably to emphasize that the lord honors those who honors him and uh, those who honor his people and mordecai sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people that is to say he sought good for God's people, and he uh, spoke up for God's people. And uh, so I, that may be the, the emphasis here. Even though, again, God isn't mentioned at all in the, the Hebrew text of, uh, of uh, Esther, as we have it, uh, even, again, kind of in the background, behind the scenes, is, is God honoring those who, who honor him. And, you know, God, he still needs people like this today, people who uh, are willing to seek uh, the good of new Israel, and also people who speak up for God and for his causes. Uh, so uh, that that hasn't gone away. Uh, so I, that's what I see here. What do you think, Alex? I think it was important to mention him being second. is because it parallels Joseph's rise to power in Egypt, which took a bad situation, right? Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, and then it's reversed, for the salvation of God's people. The same template is used for Mordecai. He's a Jew living in hard post-exilic times under the rule of Gentiles, uh, being hated by Haman, the number two guy in the empire, while the cousin that he was going to marry gets taken to be the wife of the Persian king. And so you reverse that situation. Now Mordecai is the number two guy in the empire. And maybe I'm reading between the lines here, uh, but so is Josephus. So uh, Mordecai and Queen Esther, uh, they end up living together on Haman's old property. You know, you get that when you look at chapter 8, verse 2, and then you, you see Josephus, uh, his end of the story summary mentions that they live together. So I'm not saying that this necessarily, you know, means they became married, uh, but in light of the X-rated nature that the book of Esther has already displayed itself to be, would it really be that much of a stretch of the imagination to uh, incorporate that as part of his reversal? Hey, the, the cousin you were supposed to marry, um, you still get her in the end. So that could be part of the, the template as well. Here's a shorter way of answering the question. It's important to note Mordecai as now second command because it adds to the theme of divine reversal and it fits the archetypal patterns established in the heroes of faith from Israel's history. Uh, in other words, it's good storytelling. It's good storytelling. 
So it does look like we have one extra question here as we summarize um, and then put an end cap here on uh, Esther as we have it in our Bibles, right? So does the church, Nick, what do you think? Does the church, this is an application for today, do we as Christians, does the church have authority to prescribe holy days, festival days? Um, I mean, Esther and Mordecai did it. They said we give full authority, full, full written authority. What do you think? Yeah, 9, nine verse 29. So the, the argument goes something like this. Mordecai and Esther, they established a holy day, a festival to be observed in perpetuity. It's not prescribed in Torah. A, a holy day uh, or a festival, which presumably even Jesus observed, since he was a Jewish man who observed all Jewish holidays, even the ones that were made up during the intertestamental period, <coughs> Hanukkah, <coughs> John 10 and verse 22. Um, and so therefore, godly people, and that would be specifically today the church, the church has authority to establish holy days and festivals that are not prescribed in Scripture. It's kind of how the argument goes. So, uh, does the church have that kind of authority? When we talked back at Christmas time with our Christmas episode, and uh, you can go back into the archives, episode 56, for those of you who are interested in that, we discussed questions that were similar to this, and I think we both concluded that Christians have been creating their own holy days since the beginning. In fact, in the New Testament, Romans 14, you have apparently Christians in the church in Rome who observed certain holy days, while there were others who didn't observe them. And the bottom line is, look, uh, accept one another, welcome one another, and uh, uh, yeah, don't don't judge and don't condemn one another for your practices. And then we also talked about the early church writers, how they were attempting to pinpoint the dates of Jesus' birth and his death. Now, why in the world would they want to do that? Just so they can win Bible trivia? No, they were trying to figure those out so they could establish uh, those as holy days, as feast days. In other words, Christmas and Easter, right? Esther is a book of the Bible. It is a canonical book, and it apparently provides us with the scriptural example and therefore the authority for God's people creating and celebrating holy days. And we just lost about half of our sponsors. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't have any sponsors. Um, <clears throat> but it, it seems like it seems like the book of Esther does does kind of set for us a, a precedent um, and uh, uh, bring in Romans 14, bring in the early church writers and all that. And I, I think there's a pretty strong case that, yeah, the church can can do this. We can create and probably should. It's good to remember stuff. But uh, that's my take on it. Alex, do you think the church has authority to prescribe holy days, festival days? I think that, yes... The Christian can institute and practice holidays in the sense of man-made tradition. But that comes with all the caution that comes from man-made tradition. In other words, these uh, creations of ours, they're subject to critique since they are not divinely inspired, right? We came up with them. Uh, these creations of ours, uh, they're also to be fluid, right? So we can't objectively say there's a right way or a wrong way 
to celebrate a certain holiday that we made up. Uh, granted, of course, we're going to stay within the bounds of Christian morality, um, but the last caution is that these creations of ours, uh, they can't replace or be co-equal with anything that is actually divinely inspired. Uh, Jesus, he rebukes Pharisees for this. He says, you break the commandments of God to keep the traditions of men. So we need to uh, make sure that we are open to uh, caution and critique. And uh, that's me creating a creedal dogma on the spot in a podcast at the Council of Swordplay 2020. <laughs> so if I hear you right, we cannot turn Christmas into a Christian drinking party. Is that right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. So, uh, so yeah, which means, and this is, this is interesting because um, there is uh, a growing, I would say, a growing sentiment that uh, the, the truly faithful Christian will reject and end all pagan practices of Christmas and Easter. And so... Uh, and then they just, they just think they have a slam dunk case that Christmas is pagan, that Easter is pagan, and that's just not the truth. It's not pagan in origin, and uh, a lot of the the sources for citing for that argument they're easily easily debunked. And we did some of that in our Christmas episode, but we'll do it again in other episodes. We'll show that uh, you really just can't make the case as strong as it's being made today uh, using actual primary resources, and so. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that Christmas and Easter uh, aren't subject to critique. They are. There, there may be some some tweaking and some changing in our uh, favorite Christian holidays. There may need to be some changing um, that uh, maybe brings it more in line with uh, the intention so uh, of of the holiday in the first place. So again, that's that's the idea of being fluid, right? So open to critique, being fluid, and make sure that it's not, it's not co-equal, it's not in place of a divinely inspired command. So we can't say, uh, if you're, if you're, uh, you, you have to celebrate this, right? So it's not, it's not a have to, it's a, it's a get to, if it's edifying, builds up. So that's my extra rant on top of my rant. And so <laughs> I think it's time for the featured creature, Nick. Featured creature. The featured creature this time is the Karuv, or there's lots of them. It's the Karuvim. So, Nick, tell us about the Karuvim. Yeah, cherub and cherubim. All right. (laughs) Uh, For our non-Hebrew literate folks in the audience, contrary to popular belief, a biblical— Watch yourself there, Mordecai. Yeah. A a biblical cherub is not a— round-faced, childlike being, perhaps equipped with a bow and arrow kind of floating on a cloud somewhere. Biblical uh, cherubim are ferocious creatures which inspire terror in those who see them. Unlike their throne room counterparts, cherubim, cherubim are mentioned in several places in Scripture and make the second earliest appearance of any angelic beings, second only to Satan. Genesis chapter 3, the end of that chapter, after the fall, humans are expelled from the Garden of Eden, and cherubim with a flaming sword are placed as guardians over its entrance. Again, Genesis 3.24 
Cherubim are mentioned over 90 times in the Hebrew Bible, only once in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5, where the writer of Hebrews talks about how the cherubim of glory overshadow the mercy seat. That's the top part of the Ark of the Covenant. In short, these creatures are guardians of the glory of God. Their image was portrayed on everything in the tabernacle and the temple, and probably it's because they were these guardians of the glory of God. They were woven into curtains. Their image, as I mentioned, was above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, They are portrayed variously, but uh, usually as four-winged, four-faced, heavenly creatures who are quite conspicuous in the opening chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4 and following. Uh, They have a face of a man, face of an ox, face of a lion, face of an eagle. However, later on in Ezekiel 41, 18, they are said only to have the face of a man and the face of a young lion. Uh, Either way, these are angelic beings you do not want to meet or mess with. Uh, so that's a bit about uh, cherub, cherubim that I found. Uh, what about you, Alex? What did you find? Well, I, I, I found a lot of the same information, so I'll, I'll start out by sort of summarizing and, and parroting what you've already said. So like the seraphim, uh, their counterparts, the cherubim, are throne guardians of Yahweh. And their various guardian roles are, we see them guardians, uh, guarding in the the Garden of Eden. They are guarding the uh, way to the Tree of Life after Adam and Eve are expelled. Uh, They are guardians of Yahweh's throne and sacred space and of his glory. And they are also the bearers of Yahweh, the transporters of his throne. They actually come together to like connect like a transformer and they actually create the throne of Yahweh. So... A poetic license with the transformer comment. So if uh, Eden was actually Yahweh's home, where he lived with Adam and Eve on a cosmic mountain garden, then really the role of guarding Eden was the same as guarding Yahweh's throne. Uh, you see in the ancient Near East a similar uh, creature called the Sphinx, and it has the same functions of creating and guarding throne space you see this in ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Syria. And the Sphinx had a body of a lion with wings and a human head. Very similar. You have three general appearances of Kerovim in the Bible. They're in the decorations for the tabernacle and temple fabrics. Uh, they're in carved uh, statue form in the temple, like in Solomon's temple. There are these two huge giant Kerovim that like fill up the entire Holy of Holies. Um, and of course, the lid for the Ark of the Covenant has some cherubim uh, on top of it. And then there's the real deal, right? The real life cherubim that exist in the heavenly realms with Yahweh. And in uh, regarding that, you know, you said there's over 90 verses. Well, the the coolest verse that I think, in my opinion, this is the one I like the best, right? Psalm 18, verse 10, speaking of Yahweh, he rode upon a keruv and flew and he sped upon the wings of the wind. That's cool. So this, this verse could be describing the Karuv as the wind itself, or that the Karuv uses the wind as its wings. 
either way, it's it's a pretty awesome image of Yahweh flying on this thing. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say the living creatures around Yahweh's throne in the book of Revelation should be classified as Kerovim. Though some might argue for a seraphim connection because of the similarities between Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, uh, as you mentioned, Ezekiel 1 also fits the bill. And at any rate, the living creatures there uh, in Revelation have six wings. Uh, one is like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle, all full of eyes and always singing praise to Yahweh. Interesting note, the four cardinal points of the ancient zodiac were uh, to represent north, south, east, west, were Leo, Taurus, Scorpio, which in the ancient world used to be much bigger, it was Scorpio Man, and Pegasus, which used to be Thunderbird, right? And so that may line up with the four creatures we see before Yahweh's throne, the, the lion, the bull, the man, and the eagle. And so that could correspond to the four living creatures, portraying them then as giant constellations in the sky and they're full of eyes in other words they're full of stars stars are eyes and they're all coming together these four massive constellations to create a cosmic throne for yahweh to sit on as he uses the earth as a footstool so that's kind of a cool image um as mentioned Sometimes these creatures, they have four wings, sometimes four faces. There doesn't seem to be one consistent form. So I'm just going to say they're variations of the same heavenly species. The most curious case of a Karuv appears in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 19, when lamenting about the king of Ture. Obviously, the human king of Ture was never placed in the Garden of Eden, but Ezekiel mentions in this passage a certain guardian Karuv that was. A Karuv who became conceited by his own splendor and beauty and fell away from Yahweh's holy mountain. Many scholars over the centuries, they have linked this Karuv to Satan. A similar parallel occurs in Isaiah 14. Many, many touch points there in the taunt against the king of Babylon. So was Satan a Karuv? Well, I think so. That would explain his presence in the Garden of Eden. He's a guardian. Uh, that would explain Eve's lack of apprehension around him, right? She's used to him being there. Uh, that would explain the description of him as more crafty than any beast of the field because he was actually a beast of the heavens, a heavenly beast, a karuv. So the next time you're cloud watching with your children and they say, hey, dad, that one looks like an elephant and that one looks like a dog, you should try telling them, and that one looks like it has six wings and four faces with a lion body. And it'll blow their minds. <laughs> that's and it that's for the crew. The featured creature for today. The featured creature. All right, Nick. Well, do we have any closing remarks for our audience? Uh, well, let's see. Next week, uh, ne next episode, we'll do uh, the Greek version of Esther. There's some extra bits. It's Actually, better. over... Over 100, 100 verses added to Greek Esther, and uh, they really talk about God a lot in that one. We'll cover yeah. it next time. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, can't get enough swordplay? Go into the Apple Podcast or the Google Play Music stores 
and search Swordplay. You'll find the episodes there. You can download them to your particular devices and take them with you wherever you go. And uh, leave a review. That'll help boost our ratings in those respective places where podcasts are found. Share it on social media if you are so inclined. If you found it helpful, maybe it'll help someone else. If folks have questions, Alex, where can they send them? You can send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to seeing you next time as we cover Greek Esther, and then we have a few extra special episodes after that uh, interview coming up with our good friend Paul Harrington discussing his mission work in Japan. And then we also have, uh, we've mentioned Swordplay After Hours a few times, which... uh, you know, is is a joke, a running joke, right? But uh, we did a real one, a real swordplay after hours. So you can look forward to that in a few weeks. But thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.